Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. Paranormal weather forecast. Oh, what you got this week? Um, I think it's probably <laughs> it's probably a couple of rather drab elves <laughs> not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bored, drab. Bored, no, they're drab. not even bored because they'd be a bit mischievous. They're just, just tired. Tired, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. Just walking around. The weather's n- nothing. There was supposed to be a big storm. I was excited. Not in our part of the country, there wasn't. No. There was nothing. No, no. I, I Honestly, I was thought, I woke up this morning and I thought, oh, the, the wind is really blowing quite strong and... I was sort of set, not excited, but I was like, oh, I better have a look outside. Here we go. Turns out our air purifier had just, <laughs> it needed a new filter and was making a really loud noise. <laughs> there you go. I like that one, though. It's weather for slightly sleepy elves. We've got a new Patreon as well, haven't we? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, it could be the Joe Jackson, but it's a Joe Jackson for oh, sure. He's stepping out and joining the Quantum Mechanics on Patreon. Thank you so much for that. It's funny because being Ben... Whenever we get a new Patreon, we tend to kind of text each other, don't we? I, I, it's not yeah. <laughs> its not just that it helps us kind of, you know, fund the podcast. It's, it's really nice that somebody's taken that effort. So, Joe, thank you very much on behalf of both of us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all, Patreons. Yes. Makes such a difference. Um, it's... Uh, I was going to say uh, I have some... Sherlock news. I think I might be overstating it. I might be overstating okay. it. All right. But are you going to save it to the end? Uh, I, if do you think it's wor- okay? It's it's not a big thing, but okay. I'll have some Sherlock news because then we can bring the fiddle in. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Basically, the Sherlock project has turned into an excuse for me to play my really bad fiddle music. <laughs> I quite like it. It's. I think it. I think it adds to uh, the ambience of the show. Indeed. Indeed. Well, should we just get into today's episode? Because I'm not sure I can segue from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've had... Um, uh, in the, I was lo- looking back and I just remembered, um, over the last few weeks, we've had Scottish UFOs. We've had yep. um, uh, Canadian hauntings. Yeah. We've had the CIA Holographic Universe. It really has been a smorgasbord. What have you got? Well, I'm going to carry on that smorgasbord dish i can't even say smorgasbordish theme that's not a word but we can make it we can make it a word but i'm going to try that but i I guess this episode came about because of a lost garlic press what hang on that's (laughs) that's how the some of the sherlock stuff starts well no it was a corkscrew it was a corkscrew yeah now stick with me on this ben because it will get better um so just to give you the background i don't know if it can get better (laughs) than that so i was cooking I went to the drawer that has the garlic press in. Yes. Wasn't there. Right. Check the dishwasher. Obvious next place to look. Yeah. All the other drawers, absolutely no sign of the garlic press. Could it be your house guests again? Well, no, because we hadn't even visit, visit. But there's a saying in our house, Ben. It isn't lost until mum can't find it. I think there's probably a few houses with yeah. that saying. So, of course, I called my wife and said... Any idea where the garlic press is? I've checked the drawer. It's not there. Can't find it anywhere. And they opened the drawer to show her that it wasn't there. Lo and behold, it was there. It was right there where it should have been. (laughs) That happens to me all the time. Usually with socks and knives. Not that we keep socks and knives together. That's that would be weird. But that okay. But do you swear that you couldn't see it the first time? I I I, well, I don't know if I would swear under under oath. (laughs) But I thought I didn't. But it, it led me thinking, it ga- I came to the conclusion that either I'm an idiot, which is a possibility, or my wife has paranormal powers. That's or, more likely. Or we have a poltergeist. Or sometimes things just magically disappear and then magically reappear. Like the trans-dimensional sausage. Like the trans-dimensional sausage. And it's the last option I want to talk about today not lost sausages or transdimensional objects that disappear. I thought I'd go for things that are much bigger. So I want to talk about lost villages, lost cities, even lost continents. Lost continents? Yes. Oh, justified ancients and moo-moo, but yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. So on the journey today, Ben, you'll hear about mystical villages that appear once every hundred years, 
a typewriter walker who discovered a lost city in the desert. Wow. A lost continent that has 15-foot humanoid creatures with four arms. <laughs> <laughs> of course. The search for the Fountain of Youth. And, in a kind of tribute to the late, great Michael Gambon, a Hogwarts castle that suddenly appeared above a major city. Wow. That's quite a lot of things. We've got a lot of things. We're travelling around the globe and I've jam-packed it this week. But let's start with probably the most famous of all lost places, Brigadoon. Brigadoon, Brigadoon. which we did discover was short for Bridge of something, wasn't it? Yeah. No, there is a, there is a bridge, a real bridge of Brigadoon that you can go and visit, but uh, I don't know if it's named after. I don't know, I'm not sure about the naming conventions, but it's the legend of Brigadoon that I want to talk about. So Brigadoon, for I'm sure many of you know, is a magical village hidden somewhere in the Scottish Highlands. Now, the village only appears for one day every hundred years, so for the people of Brigadoon, a century seems to last just one night. Ah, yes, of course. If a single inhabitant of Brigadoon leaves, the enchantment is broken, the village will be lost forever in the Highland mists. That's how the legend goes. Right. And if you're wondering how Brigadoon became enchanted, well, it's said that the villagers made an agreement with God that the idyllic village would remain unchanged forever. In order to achieve this, the village would be invisible to the outside world except for one day every hundred years. And on this day, the village is visible to outsiders. And if you're lucky, outsiders can also visit. And your garlic press is only visible to you once every <laughs> yeah, two nights. Once every, yeah, whenever right. I use it. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> now, the inhabitants of Brigadoon are said to hold this one-day event every hundred years as a moment of joy and celebration. Well, you would, wouldn't you? However, if any villager decides to leave, the spell is broken and all the inhabitants will be lost forever. Now, according to Bob Curran, the author... In his book, Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms, Sunken Continents, Vanished Cities and the Kingdoms That History Misplaced. (laughs) Another snappy paranormal title there. (laughs) Oh, lordy. He claims it's believed that Brigadoon first disappeared in 1754. So quite specific. The question, I guess, is why would the villagers of Brigadoon, as Kate Bush might say, make a deal with God? Wait, wait. So he, what? So he's he's postulating that it was real, and then disappeared in seventeen fifty four. Oh, oh, so he's not talking about he's not doing the history of the legend. He's literally doing the history of what they say the legend is. Yeah. Is. Right. Oh, okay. Gosh. Okay. T- totally different to how I thought he was going to do it. Well, according to Curran, the spell that was cast over Brigadoon was put in place to protect it from the advancing English redcoats during the Jacobite Rebellion. Ah. Oh. And if you think about it, Ben, from a psychological perspective, the legend makes sense, right? In the mid-1700s, Highlanders had a new punitive taxes imposed on them. It was the start of what became, became known as the Highland Clearances, where the change to the way the land had been traditionally managed by the Highland clans, basically new ways of managing the land were put in place by landlords. Um, so that resulted in taxes and all kinds of stuff also resulted in many Highland people being killed, displaced, and their way of life radically changed. So I was thinking if you live in a wonderful village of Brigadoon, you might want to find a way, right, however extreme, to isolate yourself from this kind of violent upheaval. Right, yeah, yeah. So you could see, whether it's true or not, you can see how the legend took hold because that would be a really desire that you'd want, right? However... Bob Curran and other researchers believe the legend of Brigadoon may not have its roots in the Scottish Highlands, but in the German Bavarian mountains. And the legend of a cursed village called Gurmelshausen. This legend was adapted by the Brothers Grimm in their ghostly tales, and it's found its way into other fictional works. The legend states that Gurmelshausen was a village that became inhabited by evil forces, and these forces wanted to harm humanity. The evil village is said to still exist hidden somewhere in the Bavarian hills, generally unseen by human eyes, but will appear and draw in travellers who are unaware of the legend or or who are lost. Why are they so evil? I don't know. It's slightly different 
twist, isn't it, to Brigadoon? Because, yeah. you know, Brigadoon has that kind of romantic air. This is more of a, yeah, a kind of evil edge to it. But there's a lot of similarities. And it, I believe the legend started before that of Brigadoon. So there's this theory that it influenced it. And in 1860, author Frederick Gerstacker published a fictional work based on the Germelshausen legend. The story features a cursed village that only appears for one day every century. The protagonist of the story encounters a beautiful young woman on his travels. The woman is from the cursed village. Our protagonist falls in love but manages to escape before becoming entombed in the cursed village forever. Now, it's generally accepted that Gerstacker's story featuring the Germelshausen legend influenced the musical theatre adaptation of Brigadoon. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. And the 1954 movie which featured Gene Kelly. So the plot of those Brigadoons, the, the musical, involves two American men holidaying in Scotland who come across a strange village. One of them falls in love with a woman from the village. So there's real similarities there. So I was thinking in many ways you could say that the mystical village of Brigadoon and Germelshausen are basically twin towns. I, I could almost picture the sign, could you? Yeah, I can, yeah, yeah. Brigadoon, twinned with Germelshausen. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to paint it, though. <laughs> no, or spell it. Um, so potentially we've got this German legend feeding into the legend of Brigadoon in the 1700s. We then have the fictional adaptation of Germelshausen's legend in the 1800s feeding into the musical adaptations of Brigadoon in 1947 and 1954. OK, OK. However, I must point out the producers claimed they were totally unaware of the German story. <laughs> completely unaware. Yeah, of course they did. Um, <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening, we're completely <laughs> unaware. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting. What I like about this, and not to take you off the target, there's, there is certain elements of fairy law here, which... Um, oh, go on. Well, just that sort of, that notion of, um, not necessarily glamorised, but that idea of um, if you leave... You can't go back, yep, if, yep. Uh, all that sort of thing. It yep. seems it, it's quite similar-ish. And I just couldn't help thinking that you said there was a village full of evil people and I was just remembering back to the episode when we were talking about Peter Pan and how right, he was like right. an evil fairy yeah. and then Peter Pan turned good. I mean, it's a big analogy to draw. I just It's just no, where no, my brain went. But you're right. If If these two stories did influence each other, I think it is interesting how they kind of took different paths. The German one is, you know, this story of, yeah, from what I can gather, the fictional work that was was based on the legend, you know, the guy is almost enchanted or glamorised by a girl from the village and, yeah. and just manages to escape in time. Whereas in Brigadoon, it's more romanticised where the guy leaves and realises that, his love is basically going to disappear in one day and has to go back quickly and find her and decide where he's going to be. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I I thought it was interesting from that point of view. I thought it was also interesting that it's a good example of how folklore and fiction often become confused and intertwined, which we've talked about on the podcast So before. often, yeah. Now, I did do a bit of digging to see if I could find any real-life sightings or encounters of these two enchanted villages, but alas... No avail. Oh, no one's reported seeing Brigadoon. So there is a fair bit of, let's say, fan fiction out there, Ben, of, let's say, as there is, varying quality, um, which I guess makes sense given the concept of both the legend's premise mixed with this love story and romance and the kind of evil bit. So you can find stories of Brigadoon which are a bit creepypasta, but actually most of them admit that, hey, I've written this amazing story around Brigadoon rather than saying... I visited it or I saw it. Well, from villages that were lost in time, we're going to up our game, Ben, and look at the legend of a whole continent that disappeared. This, I've no, I don't think I've ever heard of a whole continent disappearing. Well, the name of this continent is Lemuria. Oh, okay, yes. So I have heard the name, but I didn't know what it was. Well, what I love about this story, it, it, it isn't a legend that comes out of folklore. It was one born out of science. The idea of a lost continent called Lemuria began to gain traction in 1864. 
it was started, kind of started in fairly innocuous ways with a paper published in the Quarterly Journal of Science titled The Mammals of Madagascar. <laughs> that sounds... So it's pretty, pretty low, you know, yeah. low I mean, interest, right? It's a big topic, though. Yeah, it is a big topic. All the mammals in Madagascar, <laughs> yeah. all of them. Okay. The paper was written by lawyer and zoologist Philip Lutley Sklatler. Sklatler observed that there were many more species of lemur in Madagascar than could be found in either India or Africa, coming to the conclusion that Madagascar was the animal's original homeland. Logical, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. So that begged the question, how did the lemur travel from their island home to the mainland? His conclusion was that there must have been a large landmass which connected Madagascar to Africa, India and Western Australia. OK. And that this continent had been lost, disappeared under the ocean waves. Sclatter dubbed the lost continent Lemuria. All the continents were one once, though, so... Well, I think at the time they didn't really know that. Ah, right. So this was his way of in, sort of getting around that problem. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see, well, I see. Yes, exactly. Well, I guess, Ben, from this small journal article, a big story grew. Sclatter's theory quickly gained traction among other scientists and prominent thinkers of the day. Respected German biologist Ernest Heichel took the theory even further, claiming the lost continent of Lemuria was the birthplace of humankind. In 1870, he wrote, The probable primeval home or paradise is hereby assumed to be Lemuria, a tropical continent at present lying below the level of the Indian Ocean, the former existence of which, in the tertiary period, seems very probable from numerous facts in animal and vegetable geography. Vegetable geography. That's that. sort of geography. <laughs> Carrots over there. Um, sorry, I've just realised it's called Lemuria because of lemurs, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. It took me ages to get it yeah. right. It just occurred yeah. to me. Got little, it. Right. Little cute furry I'm with neighbors. you there. I'm with yeah, you there yeah, now, yeah. So Haeckel even went so far. This is brilliant. He had a world map made that included Lemuria and showed how life had spread across the globe from there. This Lemur thing, life or all life? Well, yeah, I think, well, he said all life because he thought human life came. Yeah, he yeah. upped the game of the original guy. Um, and it's amazing. We both like maps, right? It's one oh, of yeah. those types of maps that, you know, those kind of almost sepia tone in kind of colour. And it's got all the continents on it and it's got Lemuria there. And then there's just arrows all over it, everything leading from Lemuria out. So the idea of this lost continent continued to grow, but it did take a rather unexpected turn, moving from the scientific into the world of the paranormal. With the publication of a popular book by Russian occultist and medium, oh, okay, Elena <laughs> Blavatskaya. Oh, well done. That's not bad. The book published... Her in, real name is Jane. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to call her Elena from now on. The book published in 1888 was titled The Secret Doctrine. In the book, it was claimed that there had been 15 ancient races on Earth and Lemuria was the home of one of the 15. The, she described the Lemurian race as being 15-foot-tall hermaphrodites who had four arms and lived alongside the dinosaurs. Hermaphrodites? Yeah. How do they arrive at that conclusion? Well, I, I, there seems to be no basis of how, I think, through her medium techniques. Well, oh, I see. She's channeling. Got she's it. channeling. I don't think she found a fossil and went, oh, my God, there's a four-armed 15-foot hermaphrodite. I can see four hands. Is it yeah. two people? No, it's oh, one. Oh, and he's got a dinosaur bone in his hand. Or he's eating a dinosaur. That's not a dinosaur bone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. The book also suggested that these original Lemurians, the 15-foot-tall ones, evolved into the lemurs that we have today. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think it was probably there was that bit might have been true because we know about mega beasts. Yeah, that's true. That's true. My favourite thing is, do you know that um, 
squirrels come from the same evolutionary branch as horses. I know, we've mentioned this on the podcast <laughs> before. <laughs> it's the, it's the and, one thing and, we love. And I think we've mentioned it, this is the third time. Is it? And every time you tell me, I don't believe it, <laughs> and I Google it and then go, hmm. Yeah, yeah, horses were once meat-eating squirrels. Yeah. Or squirrels were once meat-eating horses. Either way, yeah. uh, horses and squirrels, they're the same thing, yeah. really. And, anyway, sorry. And lemurs and forearms. 15-foot hermaphrodites are also the same thing. Yeah, again, I'll use that phrase, <laughs> that joke. <laughs> She's been to Didcot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this, a bit like the story we featured last week, Ben, about bisons on the moon and various creatures. Yeah, moon bisons. Yeah, that's, you know, you, you kind of come across it and go, it sounds ridiculous. But if you take it back to Sklatler's original paper, he kind of was asking the right question, right? How did lemurs move from the island of Madagascar to the continents? It's the right question. It is. But I guess, as we were saying earlier, he didn't have the knowledge that we have today about plate movements and, you know, the fact that the continents were all together. So he was just coming up with the wrong conclusion to his question, right? Or was he? Oh. As in 2013, geologists found traces of a lost continent in the Indian Ocean. No, come on. Scientists discovered fragments of granite in the ocean south of India along a shelf that extends hundreds of miles towards Mauritius. On Mauritius itself, geologists have found zircon. So that's so that sounds like a superhero. It does sound made up, but there is <laughs> yeah. a thing. It is a thing. Right. Now the island of Mauritius was formed two million years ago, but the zircon they found dates back three billion years. Scientists theorized the zircon had come from a much older landmass that sunk into the Indian Ocean over 85 million years ago and once again been raised above the waves when Mauritius was formed. Was he right then, in a way? Well, kind of. I, I think it's in a... I don't think they're claiming this new continent that or old continent that was lost. I don't think it touched Africa, India and um, Australia. Uh, but... It is in the Indian Ocean. It's not exactly where Lemuria was said to be. But these scientists have now named this new lost continent under the Indian Ocean, and they're calling it Mauritia. Oh, I thought you were going to say Lemuria. That would have been... I wondered that. Out of honour of the guy, that you think they would have, but no, Mauritia. But he was kind of right by accident, because he was basing an evolutionary... Yeah. Theory. He must have. I'm just trying to get my timelines. He's post Darwin, I guess. He must have been, or was he? Was was he an advanced thinker? Because um, I suppose there were lots of people who had evolutionary yeah. ideas at the time. But even so, that was. A, I could understand that. Um, like it made perfect sense. It's not something you could like necessarily poo poo. But if you didn't know all the all the continents were stuck together at once, then you'd have to sort of invent bre- not invent, but you'd have to assume bridges and stuff. Yeah. But I love that. But now what we want to know is: Are there any skeletons of four-handed hermaphrodites? Yeah, yeah. fifteen-foot ones. I'd yeah, love to yeah. find that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we are going to find those. But I found that story intriguing. Like you said, it, it does. It's a cautionary tale as well. Of just you, he he had the right idea. He just didn't have the tools and knowledge to come up with a different conclusion, you know. So he went, oh, it must have must have been a different lost continent that had sunk and that's how they spread around. I mean, you know, forgetting the 15-foot things from the the, uh, the occultist, it's, um, I, th- I thought it was a fascinating story. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I love it. Well, I want to move on to eternal youth. For lots of reasons. <laughs> I'm there. Yeah, I'd love it, wouldn't you? Because it is a theme that connects to disappearing, lost or undiscovered worlds. It features in the Brigadoon le- legend we mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. I guess because the villagers only appear once every hundred years, they appear not to age. But the legend of eternal youth and the places associated with it go back many centuries and intersect many different cultures, which I wasn't aware of so many cultures, but it kind of makes sense. Everybody wants to live forever, don't they? Well, apart from, you know, Highlanders, uh, (laughs) the movie. Um, So the ancient Greeks, they were a little obsessed with eternal youth and the chance to live forever. Greek historian 
Herodotus wrote in the 5th century about the land of Macrobians, which contained a fountain of youth. But it wasn't just the Greeks who were obsessed. Alexander the Great searched for a fountain of youth in the 5th century BC. There is the legend of King Prester John, who it was claimed ruled over a land that had a fountain of youth. There are Caribbean legends that talk about the land of Bermini having waters that could halt ageing and cure illness. And similar stories are found in Japan, where hot springs have the same kind of effect. So many cultures across the globe share similar stories and legends. And those legends were so enticing that it led to many expeditions and crusades in search of locations that might hold the waters that could prevent ageing. Now, one of the most notable searches was Juan Ponce de Leon, a 16th century explorer who ironically thought the elixir of youth could be found in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) How did he know about Florida? We'll get on to that in a minute. (laughs) So Juan Ponce de Leon had quite a life. He sailed with Christopher Columbus on Columbus's second voyage to the Americas became a military commander, landowner, treated indigenous people pretty badly by all accounts. He became the governor of Puerto Rico, only to be unceremoniously replaced by Columbus's son. Oh, (laughs) oh, God. So after all this, Ponce de Leon decided to indulge his two main obsessions, which were searching for gold and trying to find the fountain of youth. Of course, they were his two main obsessions. So, yeah. chess and golf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, garlic presses and finding the fountain youth. <laughs> Which is another great prog rock album. Yeah, it really is. De Leon had heard stories from Native Americans of a legendary magical spring, and that the waters of this spring could make an old person young again. And he'd heard similar tales in the Caribbean. So he led multiple expeditions around the Bahamas and Bermini in search of the Fountain of Youth. In 1513, he landed on Florida's east coast and claimed the area for Spain. So he kind oh. of discovered Florida in a way, depending on I your I see, right. Now, his journey for riches and the Fountain of Youth continued down the coast through the Florida Keys and the western coastline. Didn't find it, though. He returned to Spain in 15... <laughs> went to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, went to Mar-a-Lago instead, where you can find the fountain of youth. He returned to Spain in 1514, where the king named him Captain General. His exploring days ended in 1521, when he returned to Florida, and he and his 200 men were attacked by Native American warriors. Ponce de Leon was wounded, and in July of that year, he died in Havana in Cuba. He got around a bit, didn't he? He really did. Wow. Now, from then on, Juan Ponce de Leon has been linked with the search for the Fountain of Youth, though some historians debate whether he actually did try and find it, as his writings make no mention of it at all. <laughs> you'd have thought you'd have noted something down. <laughs> you'd think, wouldn't it? I'm looking for gold, oh, and if I can find the Fountain of Youth. I've got to really bear with me on my next name that's coming up, Ben. Some claim the legend began after his death, linking it to the work of a historian called Gonzalo Fernandez Oviedo y Valdez. If I had a box with a little <coughs> like applause button, you get it. That seems that is. I'm not no native speaker, but that seemed pretty impressive. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Um, now, this historian wrote in 1535, so this is after Ponce de Leon had died, he said that Ponce de Leon had been searching for the fountain of youth to cure his sexual impotence. <laughs> so, okay. Which made me think there was some historical beef between these two guys, don't you think? Yeah, I, that does sound like a bit of a playground thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's his sexual impotence. So that's where they think the connection with... Uh, Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth comes from, but there is no writings from him, our writings at the time of his journeys where he talks about trying to search for it. So it's interesting that... So it could have all just come from this one kind of slightly bitchy quote from a historian after his death. Now, another place where you can live forever, and many have searched to try and find it, is Mount 
Peng Lai. This hidden island is said to be situated off the Chinese coast in the Bohai Sea. According to both Chinese and Japanese legends, the island is one of five that has a group of immortals living on it. Not only are its inhabitants said to be immortal, they have special powers that can destroy evil. The island contains palaces made from gold and platinum. It also contains magical trees, the fruit of which, when eaten, have the power to bring people back from the dead and bestow eternal life. Wait, wait, wait. If you're dead, how do you eat it? Yeah, that's a really good point. You'd have to... You have to kind of move their mouth for them. They've not thought this through, have they? They haven't thought this through. <laughs> Maybe if you're just about to go. Yeah. You're like, oh, give me that pear. Yeah. Not that one, the magic one. Yeah, just dribble it in as a juice or something. Yeah, no, I haven't <laughs> oh, thought God about that. <laughs> no, you're right. Well, it, that, it gets even weirder. In the Japanese legend of Mount Penglai, the atmosphere around the mountain is not made from air but from the souls of the dead. And if you breathe in, you acquire the knowledge of those souls. Um, okay. That's a bit... I don't think I want to breathe in the souls of the dead. No. I think this is another one where nobody's actually come across it, but that's the legend for China and Japan. But I guess the point is, it's all over the place, this thing, but I guess people want to be youthful, even today. Yeah. It's the legend of Ole. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Ole is or Ole, it's oil, apparently. Yeah. It's somewhat helpful. Yeah. Ben, it's one thing to search for these lost, mysterious places, but it's quite another to actually find one, as we found out. Well, one man and his team of explorers did claim to have found a lost city in the deserts of Africa. The man in question was William Leonard Hunt, a Canadian entertainer and tightrope walker, who also went by the name of Signor Guillermo Farini. Or the Great Farini. The Great Farini, that's better. The Great Farini had planned to be the first person to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. But he... Yeah, dangerous, right? But he was beaten to it by the Great Blondin. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love the way... Which blondin are you? Are you the great one? No, no. I'm I'm the mediocre blondin yeah. and it's plighted I'm... me my entire life. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. There seemed to be an enormous amount of people that were desperate to kill themselves at the Niagara yeah. Falls at yeah. some point. Yeah. Farini decided that if he wasn't going to be the first to tightrope across Niagara Falls, he was going to be the most spectacular. He made the crossing with a washing machine on his back... <laughs> The first choice. Oh, yeah. what, what, do washing machines exist? It's like, I've seen pictures of it. It's it's this little kind of wooden, it's like a tumbler. Oh, okay. Like an old tumbling thing. At one point during the journey, he lowered himself down 100 foot to a boat below, stunning the spectators on the boat by taking a large drink from their glass of wine. Then he climbed back up the rope 100 feet to complete the walk. That is showing off oh, somewhat. You've got, to, you've got to admire his style, haven't that you? That is big balls. Yeah. Okay, he's quite good. I'm liking it, don't you? Very, very much. But it's not this spectacular feat that Farini is most famous for. It's what he did afterwards. He decided he wanted to become an explorer and led an expedition in 1885 to a barely explored region of the Kalahari Desert in search of diamonds. He set out to explore this region, uh, which was semi-arid region of the desert, an area that had not really been explored by Westerners. Farini had travelled to the Kalahari in search of diamonds, but claims to have come across something much bigger, an ancient lost city buried in the sand. In his journal, he described what he found. He described it as a city of colossal proportions made from massive stones stacked on top of each other. The city laid out in an arc and resembled the Great Wall of China after an earthquake. Parts of the city were exposed, parts hidden under the sand. Digging away some of the sand exposed a pavement six metres wide with longer stones laid at right angles to the path. 
Intersecting the pavement at right angles was another pavement, making a type of cross. There were no inscriptions or markings to be found anywhere, and Farini estimated the ruins to be thousands of years old. I see. Right, OK. So he's definitely thinking other civilization. Yeah. Um, a long-lost civil- long advanced yeah. civilization. Right, yeah, yeah. Now, since Farini's claims of this mysterious hidden city in the desert, there are over 35 expeditions have been launched to find it. None so far have been successful. Oh, no, it's not real then. Wow. From 1932 onwards, 25 expeditions were launched. They crisscrossed the desert area in the direction that Farini had travelled. Many of these expeditions used reconnaissance aircraft to scan the area, but no evidence of this city was found. Now, there have been many theories about Farini's alleged lost city of the Kalahari. Of course, given the man's background as a showman, many people say it was just a hoax. There must be some money there somewhere. Especially because Farini made minimal notes and failed to record the exact locations he had travelled. <laughs> it's an amazing city. Where is it? It's like it's somewhere over here. Yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be somewhere over here. Oh, but, but I would, yeah, aircraft. I was thinking, yeah, of course, 1920s, of course there's aircraft, yeah. But they saw nothing. They saw nothing. But this lack of note-taking has also led to another theory from Professor A.J. Clement, who researched the story in 1964. Working through Farini's poor notes, he concluded that Farini had wrongly believed that he had travelled deep into the heart of the Kalahari Desert. Well, actually, he hadn't gone to that part of it. He'd gone to a different part. <laughs> they were looking in the wrong place. Oh, but so maybe he still has found something unusual. Well, Professor Clement retraced what he believed was Farini's true route and came across a set of monumental rocks resembling the walls Farini had described. Ah. Uh. But Clement found that these rocks were a natural geological curiosity a set of 180-million-year-old rocks made from dolerite, which can erode into blocks that resemble an artificially-made structure. Oh, how disappointing. Yeah. So, yeah, the most likely explanation outside of the fantastical or a hoax is that Farini came across the rocks, mistook them for signs of an ancient civilization, and due to his poor note-taking, he got the location completely wrong. <laughs> Oh, that is such a shame, because it's so tantalising. Um, and he must have had some sway to convince that many people to go looking. Yeah, well, he did exhibitions, and there are some kind of really grainy photos, but they don't really tell you much. Uh, a couple of grainy photos. I'm not sure whether they were taken afterwards or represented. You'd never tell with the papers. But he did, He when he came back from the desert, he did hold a... Hughes' exhibition talks about what he'd seen and what he'd discovered. However, there is a small twist in this tale. In 2016, the Travel Channel aired an episode of Expeditions Unknown, where during their visit to the Kalahari, the show's host, Josh Gates, found man-made walls and rock paintings that matched Farini's description of the lost city. Oh my goodness! So they didn't find the city themselves, but they found kind of artwork, effectively, that were like, wow, this is kind of how he described it. Well, how unusual. Yeah. I wonder whether he was conflating two areas or... I, I guess you could say maybe he saw the artwork and made the thing up. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. you can't rule that out, but I guess if you go with the story, the implication could be that... He did find this place. It got lost back to the desert. Yeah. And then when they found these ancient paintings, it's like, hold on, this is what he described. That is just wonderful. Because I was I was thinking that it's, it's completely different but the same. Somebody thought that they had uncovered some ruins in the desert. But it turns out it was the set of... <laughs> I think it was Antony and Cleopatra that was oh, filmed... Really? In, like, the 30s, but it was such a magnificent set. They didn't take it away, they just left it. And the sand came over. Now, this is a terrible story, 
because I can't remember which what the name of the film is, where it was and what happened. But I do remember I do remember what happened. What happened was they found a film set, thought they discovered a lost civilization, but oh, they'd wow. actually discovered a Hollywood film set. But um I was hoping that you were gonna come across like and actually as it turned out it was for a play or something. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, oh, I like that though. I yeah. like that story. It reminds me of there's that um I don't know if the story's apocryphal or not, but um when Cecil B. DeMille was filming one of his big blockbusters, I think in the desert somewhere, don't know which one, um, there was a young filmmaker who'd basically turned up on set with his camera and said, I'd really love to work with you, I'd really love to work with you. And Cecil B. DeMille was just fobbing him off, fobbing him off, get him away from me. And uh, he he kept coming up. And One of the final scenes was they were going to blow up this big kind of city in the desert or wherever it was um and to get rid of this young kid with his camera he said see that big hill up there go stand up there and just film you know so he just got rid of him so Cecil B. DeMille shouts action they've got all this dynamite to blow the city up the set they use far too much dynamite it knocks over all the cameras when it explodes They've got no footage, basically, of this thing being destroyed. And he's like, Cecil B. DeMille's got his head in his hands going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then he remembers the young kid on top of the mountain or the hill, apparently drive, you know, runs up there and goes, did you get it? Did you get it? <laughs> and the kid apparently said, whenever you're ready, Mr. DeMille. No, come on, no. <laughs> that can't be true, but I love that, that story. That is such a good punchline. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> oh, so you, do you remember what happened with the film? Did they have to do no, it again? I don't know. That's all I know of the story. I'm pretty sure that can't be true, but oh, it's a wonderful talk. That is tale. a brilliant tale. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So, Ben, I can see why these legends took hold and gained credibility in the 1700s, 1800s and early 1900s. And maybe it's a bit of a shame that these type of stories in the 21st century couldn't really gain traction because, you know, we travel around the world, we have technology like GPS, cameras on all the time, the internet, and it all seems too fantastical to be real, right? Well, that last one would have been found out by Google Earth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I thought, well, this search of lost places, it's over. Which brings me to my final story, when over a period of six months in 2015 and 2016, a giant city seemed to suddenly appear in the clouds above two separate locations in China, and their appearances were captured on video. I might have seen a YouTube video of this. Yes, we will put links to the videos uh, on our Facebook page um, if you go to at TQM Podcast or search the Quantum Mechanics Paranormal Podcast or you could just Google um, cloud cities in China or, or something like that, mirage cities, you know, cloud cities, something like that. So in the videos, this huge city of high-rise buildings just seems to be floating above the, above the main city below. To me, it doesn't look like cloud paradoilia. The buildings, okay, they're cloudy, but they're really clearly defined. In a new story from the Huffington Post at the time, Lee Spiegel wrote, For the second time in five months, on March 18th, 2016, a group of hovering buildings were reportedly seen and videotaped. Theories about what it could be range from a peak into a parallel universe to a portal to a hologram deliberately put into the sky to an alien invasion or a mirage known as a Feta Morgana. That's what I was that's what I was trying to remember. Yes, Feta Morgana, yes. Now, when you see both videos, you can see why the immediate thoughts went to the mirage effect known as a Feta Morgana. We've talked about the Feta Morgana before on the podcast. Um, it's a rare light phenomena. It's, typically, you see it when boats seem to be floating above the sea. There's quite yeah, a lot of Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly at the time of the first video, mainstream outlets like CNN came to the conclusion it was likely this type of mirage. However, this theory was questioned by filmmaker Alan Melik Tijanian, who debunks viral online videos. He said... 
Fata Morgana is an extremely shimmery multi-layer type of mirage that occurs in rare atmospheric conditions. They can make distant boats seem to hover above the ocean surface, but they can't make a futuristic metropolis manifest out of nowhere. All mirages, including Fata Morgana, can only appear very close to the horizon line. No mirage can extend thousands of feet up. Yeah, I mean, it did always seem unusual, but he's saying not possible. Not possible. In fact, he kind of calls out many of the news outlets for just lazy journalism. You know, because I saw clips like on CNN and other places, you know, the weather expert comes on and explains how, uh, you know, Professor Morgana works. And he's basically saying, no, you know, can't be done like that. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of it on my phone. It doesn't look as if... Yeah, now you've said that, it does feel like it would be difficult to imagine. Well, he goes on to conclude that, in his opinion, both video clips were hoaxes. And part of the reason for that, he said, firstly, the Mirage cities were reported to have been seen by millions of people, yet only two known videos exist. Good point. There is a lack of any credible first-hand accounts from witnesses to the event. Now, I guess one could argue that... Both of those facts could be explained by the Chinese government potentially covering up the incident, especially if you go with some of the internet interpretations that, you know, could be some kind of alien visitation to China or a parallel universe making contact. You know, the Chinese would maybe try and cover that up. Well, I guess the idea of all this being a hoax was given a bit more credibility in September of 2020 when a video emerged of a new Mirage City encounter, one floating in the skies above buildings in Shandong province in China. So the headline in the Daily Mail newspaper at the time was, (laughs) and when you see the pictures, you'll kind of know why, is that Hogwarts floating in the sky? Incredible moment, Harry Potter's school seems to appear over Chinese city. (laughs) J.K. Rowling has got so much money. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, it does look like it. Yeah, it does look like it. I love this. Users of Weibo, China's version of the artist formerly known as Twitter, wrote, (laughs) these are some great comments, is this Shandong's branch of Hogwarts? Another one said, how can us muggles see Hogwarts? (laughs) And my favourite, has Hogwarts finally come to China to recruit students? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does look like it. Local authorities at the time dismissed the sightings as a mirage. Again. Personally, I don't think you need to be a special effects expert or an expert in, you know, (laughs) in meteorology to conclude that the videos are likely and the previous two hoaxes. In fact, the online video debunker I mentioned earlier uh, did a video about this and showed how the effects can be achieved with basic video editing and graphic software. Ah, so I thought you were going to say, actually, it was a clever, like, it was Warner Brothers put it onto the clouds no. to launch a new theme no, park or something. would have been a great oh, idea. No. would have been a great idea. Yeah. Um, and actually, this final video, the one that looks like Hogwarts, there are videos out there as well that show the buildings which they think have been kind of almost copy and pasted into the video to create the illusion. So, you know, there's a school somewhere that has these two spires and you look at, oh, well, that is identical. But, of course, this didn't stop wider theories and conspiracies flying around the internet. Um, I mean, like I said, everything from parallel universe to alien invasion to um, the American government basically using some giant hologram to freak out China by putting these things out there. It did make me think, in conclusion, there is something incredibly romantic and almost, I don't know, enchanting about this concept of lost places, villages, cities, just suddenly appearing again without all the other enchanted bits that may go with the legends. Um, And I'm not sure it has gone away if considering the internet's reactions to these videos. Likely fake, but there seems to be some desire for this stuff. And in the 21st century, we seem to have replaced this kind of almost mythical 
um, element to it and channeled it more into a kind of alien or parallel universe vibe. Yeah, yeah, completely agree, completely agree. I mean, um, I'm not sure if they're exactly the same, but a lot of people, I say a lot of people, many reports come in of um they describe the craft as football pitch sized yes huge ufos and i guess in the past excuse me viewers and listeners um, i've had a terrible cold all week and my, my voice is giving way apologies for that yeah. um but you could have in the past described those as floating cities i guess i i thought you were being possessed you know those people who get possessed <laughs> yes. by the alien overlords <laughs> he's <Right>. mine now <laughs> I am Ben. <laughs> no, I sound like this because it's illegal to bike um, uh, day nurse anymore, sadly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can see how um, the times change. Like, but again, go back to fairies. Fairies, goblins, aliens, small greys, yeah. they sort of have similar themes. Yeah, well, I, I guess in that sense you could reverse engineer some of the legendary stories of Brigadoon and, you know, you could you could... You probably could make a, oh, it was an alien spaceship argument. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, 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 you could, you could. Yeah. I mean, the Brigadoon thing as well, though, it's such a great tourist yeah. thing. It kind of goes down there with Loch Ness and yeah. that that sort of thing. But um, Oh, and there was a new Loch Ness photo that I saw the other week. I don't know if you saw that. I did, I did, yeah. Uh, it looks like a log. Yeah, it looks like a log and... Interesting execution of it, though, because the person who took it basically claimed they were they were kind of worried about the attention and embarrassment it might cause, so they've just hung on to the picture for years. So, interestingly. Well, that was at the time because there was um, a new hunt yes. for Nessie. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a signature returned, as in... Not, he didn't sign something, but I mean, yeah. there's a, there was a radar signature. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he signed there you go, leave me alone. <laughs> What's there, your name? <laughs> there was a sonar, or radar, I guess it's sonar signature, or yeah. something unusual. But um, I think the explanation f- um, for why we haven't seen that is that the recorders weren't on or something. Right. So... No so new evidence. Cecil B. DeMille again. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that I really love that things that appear and disappear. It reminds me of um, one of my favourite episodes that I put together was the houses that haunt. Yes, buildings that come yeah, and go. No, I love that. And I was thinking about that episode quite a lot um, while I was doing this one. Because was that the one? Did we also have the um, disappearing gas station in that one? We had, uh, I don't know if it was in that one, but yeah, the Desperate Gas Station, one of the longest paranormal films. I know, the other one I love that you did, I know it's, well, I guess it's a building rather than a whole village or city, was the one in Piccadilly Circus where the woman went into a cafe and that was no longer there. I love that story, yeah. The time slip, yeah. Yeah. And Brigadoon, we could be seeing, we could be seeing a time slip, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I mean, talking of time slips... One of the, I mean, we are not turning into a, a ghost hunting show by any means, but we've been invited to, at some point, go to, uh, we live in an area where there's lots of RAF bases around us, and there's one that was notable during the Second World War, and apparently ghost aircraft are seen and heard yeah. quite regularly around there. And and I've heard that from quite a lot of people, um, the idea of, like, the, you see a plane coming over, then you realise... Well, there must be an air show on because it's a Lancaster bomber, very recognisable World War Two aircraft. And, the, the, of course, there wasn't an air show and right. nobody knows anything about it. I think those are fascinating, that time slip. And, and the, the idea is that you don't know the difference really between the solid object and the time slip. And that could well be true of um, uh, the, the um, uh, Brigadoon and that. Yeah. The, um, the, the cities in the sky... Such a well-known phrase, you know, castles yeah. in the sky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy had the um, the airborne party. Yeah, if yeah. you remember that sort of thing. Avatar has something like that. There's those kind of rock-shaped cities that I don't know if they float above the oh, sky, yeah, yeah, but they, they do, look yeah. like they do. They've got thin bottom bit to them. So, yeah, there is something. I think that's the point, really. That there's something about the concept and the imagery which. It's just so enchanting and appealing that it's it's 
it would be sad to have a world where these stories didn't exist, really. Yeah, I agree. But I think Lemuria is equally as an enchanting idea, but particularly having a land named after lemurs. Yeah. I mean, they do love lemurs. Well, I love the fact that, you know, that came, that didn't come from some kind of folklore or legend. That yeah. came from a scientific from a paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then recently, to sort of go with that theme, we've had the uncovering of what appears to be a wooden structure from years before. So it, it's a pre-Iron Age wooden structure from a time when we didn't think people were building structures. They thought we'd been nomadic. Right. I don't know if you saw that, but I that was see that, no. it's quite extraordinary. I can't remember how old it is because, again, it's off the top of my head. I, was, I didn't make any notes on it, but I saw it in the papers. So it looks like they said it was either from um, a building or a ledge of some sort. Right. So we were, as humans, presumably it was humans, they were saying we were building this stuff, but we wouldn't have just been Homo sapiens uh, uh, as we are now. We There was... I'm going to get my terms wrong. I'm just going to say there was a, it was other species of human-like right. pe- things around who were building it. So right. it's not just exclusively us. So, hey, why didn't another civilization build a castle or... Yeah, or know, a city in the or desert. Or a city in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very alluring. Yeah, yeah. Or Lemuring. I mean, Lemuring, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it doesn't just always have to be aliens. Yeah. Um, I've been all the t- time since you've mentioned it, there's that one... With the that's um, often on ancient aliens with the very tightly interlinked rocks, right? Which is used as an example of advanced engineering in a forgotten time. And all of you listening will be kicking me now because you all know what it's called, and I can't remember. But you know the one I mean. So there's loads of stuff like that. But I love that. I love that. Thank you. I am. I will look at lemurs with a new. Added sense. There's a place near us, Cotswold Safari Park, if you live in this part of the world, where you can walk into the lemur cage and walk between them and they'll jump over you and sometimes land on your shoulder. And they're not mean at all. They're really nice. They're very cool. I love lemurs. Yeah. You could really freak out the zookeeper and say, I know where they came from. (laughs) They were once 15-foot creatures with four arms. (laughs) I thought you were going to say you could really creep out the the zookeeper by dyeing your dog uh, grey and painting white rings on its tail (laughs) and walk it out on a lead. You could do that as well if you wanted. If you want. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Did you... So you you had a little bit of Sherlock-ness for us? I did. I did. Well, my bit of Sherlock-ness was that... um, Wait. Oh, the music... Cue the music. Oh, Peter, that fits beautifully under your chin. (laughs) (laughs) He's fiddling away in front of me. I'd like to clarify that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no difference between a fiddle and a violin. We know this. Um, So um, anybody that knows me will know um, I had some... Sad news about my dog last year, and it's finally time to welcome a new dog into our family. Um, and we've been doing a lot of research. And one person, we found we found him uh, now, but somebody who I was in discussion with about a puppy, um, we were just talking about where they'd come from and um, and the the adults, the mum and dad and stuff. And the dad was called Sherlock. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That is weird. Yeah, which is a good name for a dog, actually. Yeah, yeah. But um, she said she called him Sherlock because she said wherever she hid anything, he would go and find it. Oh, really? That's brilliant. So he became known as Sherlock as a puppy. Oh, brilliant. And, um, and, yeah, so I nearly bought Sherlock's son. Nearly, nearly. Well, there's something there. That's pretty good. I think that's a good one. Yeah, thank you. That's That's almost a sighting. Uh, yeah, it, it is. And for for anyone concerned, I'm a big dog lover. I do rescue dogs as well. That's it's. Please don't please don't come at me thinking I'm just going out buying puppy farm dogs. That is absolutely not what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, look. Um, thank you for listening. Um, uh, if you enjoyed that, please, you know, wherever you get us, like, subscribe, leave a review. We love that. If you really liked it, you can always check us out at Patreon dot com forward slash tqm pod please do that um and uh just keep those reviews going 
Uh, you know who you are. You're one of our lovely patrons. Um, I couldn't see your review immediately because um, we're Britain and you're America, but I can see it using my little tool that I've got. What an amazing review. Thank you. Um, uh, you know that scene in Wayne's World where they meet Alice Cooper? Yeah. Is it, like right back at you thank you so much uh, it means the absolute world i showed it to my partner and uh all of my close friends with a little tear in my eye it's very kind yes very good okay we'll see you next week on the quantum mechanics take care see you then bye the quantum mechanics